Father, we just thank you so much for who you are. We acknowledge you as, as the great God of all creation. The God who came to redeem us, forgive us of our sins, defeat death, conquer the devil. You are the great one. And we just acknowledge that. We thank you for that. We recognize that. I ask that you would speak to us through your word, um, all the different storms that different ones are facing today. I pray that you would help us to see Jesus, that we would trust you. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you come and speak to us? Would you lift up discouraged hearts? And would you encourage us with what you have to say? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in case you haven't noticed, and as Pastor Bob mentioned, it's an election year. Uh, The two parties, they've been vying for which candidate should be nominated to lead their respective party to the presidency. The conventions have ended, candidates have been selected, acceptance speeches have been spoken, claims have been made, promises have been given. After laying out her plans about what she will do as president, the Democratic nominee said this, Now, I imagine that some of you are sitting at home thinking, well, that all sounds pretty good, but how are you going to get it done? How are you going to break through the gridlock in Washington? Well, look at my record. I've worked across the aisle to pass laws and treaties to launch new programs that help millions of people. And if you give me the chance, that's exactly what I'll do as president. In Cleveland, a week earlier, the draft of the Republican nominee's speech said this, Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. My pledge reads, I'm with you, the American people. I am your voice. So to every parent who dreams for their child and every child who dreams for their future, I say these words to you tonight, I'm with you, and I will fight for you, and I will win for you. End quote. One of the questions that all of us have when we decide on a candidate for president, no matter what the party is, is whether or not the person has the track record to do what they say they are going to do. And if their actions in the past validate the kind of person they say they are and the president they say they are going to be. So in some ways, it's a question of authority deserved or not. We as citizens, if we choose to vote, have to ask ourselves who they believe should be entrusted with the authority of the presidency. Now, so you're not too nervous, the sermon has nothing explicitly to do with making that decision, though it does implicitly. So what does that have to do with our series in Matthew? I think it has quite a bit to do with it. While the election cycle gives us countless speeches and ads encouraging us to vote for particular candidates with various levels of political power on the basis of their words and actions, Matthew has been showing us the authority of the person of Jesus of Nazareth on the basis of what he says and what he does. In our series in the Sermon on the Mount, we saw how Jesus spoke with an authority that was far above any religious leader of the day. And here lately, since the turn in chapter 8, we've seen how Matthew is showing us that Jesus doesn't just speak with power, but that Jesus acts with an authority greater than anyone else as well. We saw this in Matthew 7.28. It said, When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. We've been seeing the last several weeks as Matthew has been walking us through moments of the miraculous in Jesus' life. And in doing so, Matthew is giving us mounting evidence to the fact that Jesus' authority extends over every kind of power that undermines the image of God in humanity and establishes Jesus as king of the world. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus' words, that Jesus' wonders carry a weight of authority that's greater 
than any person. There is no religious leader or political ruler like him. He excels them all. He excels everyone. A few weeks ago at the start of chapter 8, we saw in the story of the leper, it showed us that Jesus has authority over the body, that Jesus can reverse disease and sickness. We also found that he has authority over religious systems and makes the religiously unclean clean. He makes outcasts, someone who's never been touched, a part of the community, welcomes him in. In Jesus' encounter with the Gentile centurion, we recognize that he has an authority to heal racial divides, to bring Jew and Gentile and even black and white together. In verses 14 to 17, we saw how Jesus heals many a physical and psychological torment and that Jesus has authority over the unseen realm. He has authority over demons. In the most recent section, we got to see how Jesus' rule extends over every single area of our lives as he asks his followers to do anything, to forsake everything that, they may, hold, that, that may hold them back from following him wholeheartedly. And today, I'm going to do my best to show you how Jesus has authority over nature. Jesus has authority over nature. So we're not just making up themes for our groups of sermon series that we've been going through. Matthew is declaring to us the unrivaled supremacy of Jesus in specific ways, story by story, passage by passage, so that we see that King Jesus rules over everything. This is why we're calling these two chapters in this particular sequence of sermons the Authority of Jesus series, trying to break up Matthew in little series to help us deal with how long it's going to take. If it wasn't clear enough, Matthew, in speaking to authority, ends his book with a resurrected, with a resurrected Christ, with Jesus claiming to have all authority, all authority, with some in his midst worshiping him for it and others remaining in doubt. One of the most important things we can do as elders is remind you that King Jesus has all authority and that he commands your allegiance. He commands my allegiance. It's easy to forget this. We believe it, at least we say we do, but it's easy to forget. We go about our lives, our minds, our emotions get caught up in the day today get caught up in even important things like family, country, and we can easily forget that our main calling is faith, hope, and love under the reign of King Jesus. That's our calling. The Republican nominee said that he alone can fix the country. Not to get too political, but we need more than just a fixed country. We need fixed hearts. There are greater powers at work in our world than political ones. We have deeper problems than the problems that were mentioned at the convention. It extends to every race, to every person, to every single country under the sun. Satan, sin, and death are the world's great powers. And the good news of the gospel is that King Jesus has overpowered them. He alone has disarmed Satan. He has defeated death. He has forgiven sin. So today... We're going to turn our minds away from the election or from whatever else might be pressing on you with authority, maybe serious authority. And we're going to look, we're going to stare at the authority of Jesus in a storm with his disciples. So our text, Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the wind and the sea. There was a great And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? God's word. 
In verse 23, 23, we read that Jesus gets into a boat. He's just ended an evening of healing crowds full of sick and demon-possessed people and calling people to follow him no matter what it costs them. And he's giving some orders to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So he gets in the boat, and the disciples, like the good followers of Jesus that they are, do what he says. They get in the boat with Jesus. Now, judging by first century, or, or judging by one first century boat found in Galilee in 1986, that boat was just enough to fit 13 people or so. And though the text doesn't tell us the size of the boat or who was in it, we may have a 27 foot long by 8 foot wide boat with Jesus and his 12 men inside it. So it's crowded. Crowded boat. Because of the Sea of Galilee's location, hundreds of feet below sea level, surrounded by hills, causing strong winds occasionally to hit the sea, it was known to have very rough weather sometimes. But there's no indication from Scripture that the disciples at this time think they are going into a night storm. They're simply being obedient, they're continuing on in their journey following Jesus. They saw him do great miracles that night. I'm sure there was quite a buzz about them. Who is worried about a storm when Jesus just got done throwing out devils? They may have been wondering, what extraordinary work are we going to see next? What's the next amazing thing Jesus will do? On the surface of that alone, following Jesus can sound like a life of supernatural security and excitement. But that's not the whole story. Sure, Jesus heals the sick. He makes them well. Yet, during that healing meeting, he says he has no place to lay his head. He tells one guy, don't worry about burying your dad, but drop everything and follow me. This had to be confusing. Cousin Jenny, cousin Jenny gets healed. Dad just died, and I can't go bury him. This makes no sense. Doesn't make any sense, Jesus. He doesn't always live up to our expectations. Jesus' definition of the wonderful plan God has for your life that starts when you follow Jesus is different than we think. Wonderful isn't the right word to describe it. Sometimes following Jesus means he leads us right into a storm. For these disciples, it's a night of miracles that turns into a night of natural disaster. And there's much here for us. To be a follower of Jesus is to follow him wherever he asks you, no matter where he takes you. And he takes his disciples into a storm. The kind of storm that scares experienced fishermen enough to think that they are going to die. Jesus never promises not to take us into storms. In fact, sometimes he leads us right into storms. Look at verse 24. Verse 24. The word here for storm is more often used for an earthquake throughout the New Testament. It's seismos. Revelation, the book of Revelation uses that word. It refers to shaking and shock uses it seven times. This is clearly not an earthquake, but the storm's powerful force reveals that the sea is shaking. Hence the word great. A great storm. Not your average storm, but one with such intensity that the boat was being swamped by the waves. Waves towering over the boat, full of followers of Jesus, and then smashing down upon the boat, filling it with water. And in all of this, Jesus, in all of this ruckus, Jesus is sleeping like a baby. And Mark's reporting of the story tells us that Jesus was in the stern, the back of the boat, asleep on a pillow. may not be your average pillow. The cushion was probably a large ballast bag, well over 100 pounds. But Jesus, no matter what he's on, is catching his ease. He's asleep in the tempest as jolting as an earthquake while his disciples think their lives are over. They're goners. 
The miracles of Jesus a few hours earlier are the farthest things from their minds. They're going to die. Some of you are in a storm right now. You're facing the new reality of a negative medical condition. You're in the middle of relational challenges. You're facing each day with chronic pain. And the question is not, will you feel good today, but will you feel not as bad as the day before? You're missing a loved one. You're mourning the death of a spouse. You're mourning a child. You're mourning a friend. You're battling the dark clouds of depression or maybe the inner chaos of anxiety or mental illness. You feel like you're sinking. Physically, emotionally, even spiritually. This is not what you expected out of life or life with Jesus. This is not what you expected it to be like. Storms weren't included in your plan. Let's be honest. Let's not do Christian cliches. Let's not use God's sovereignty over situations as an excuse to not emotionally process through those situations as a human being. Be free to admit it. Be free to say it. Jesus seems like he's asleep sometimes. God's presence seems distant sometimes. In the worst moments of our lives, sometimes it feels as if all we experience is the silence of heaven. But there's good news. And it may not feel like it initially, but it is good news. If you have a storm, if you have a storm in your life right now, This gospel passage proves that storms are not necessarily evidence for the absence of Jesus. They may, in fact, be evidence for the presence of Jesus. For the followers of Jesus, these verses speak with divine authority to the storms in your life. They say that Jesus is with you. God has not forsaken you. That suffering in your life does not mean that God has abandoned you, or that you have done something to cause the turmoil that you are experiencing. Even when it seems like Jesus is silently asleep in your storm, Jesus is with you. Imagine what the disciples are thinking at this point. I can imagine their reaction might be like my wife's reaction. If things are chaotic in the other room, kids are going wild, and I'm just on the couch, sitting silently, quietly, enjoying my laptop. And if her mouth doesn't say it, her eyes will say it. Seriously? Really? And I think we give the same look to Jesus. Seriously, Jesus? Really? This? Verse 25. This text tells us the disciples' response. Notice that they're not passive. They're not stoic about what's happening. They don't just say, well, here we are in the storm. God must want it to happen. Okay, sirrah, sirrah, whatever will be, will be. I'm just going to sit here. They get emotional. They're afraid. They run to Jesus, the very place every single one of us should run. They cry out, save us, Lord. And this cry is one of anguish. It's terror. They are afraid. Save us, Jesus. Save us, Lord. So the helpless run to the helper. Powerless run to the one who has power. And that's exactly the right move. And it's unusual, again, because all these guys are fishermen, or at least a lot of them. They know about Galilee. They know about the proneness of it towards storms. They've faced many before, but not like this. They are the sailors, but the sailors go to the carpenter, taking a nap. They know he's more than a carpenter or even a good teacher. They know he acts with the same kind of authority that he teaches with. So they wake up the wonder worker. They ask him to save them. They plead with him, save us, Jesus. And Jesus' response, kind of like my response if someone wakes me up, one of rebuke. But Actually, it's nothing like my response. A lot of times my response in the middle of the night is not a good one. It's one of sin. Some of my worst moments have been in the middle of the night. But in verse 26, Jesus' response is not in any way sinful, but it is surprising. 
he asks them why they have a lot of fear and just a little bit of faith. He said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He addresses their hearts before he addresses the storm. And at this moment, that's probably not what the disciples wanted to hear, right? Probably not what the disciples wanted to hear. Let's be honest, a lot of times we don't want Jesus to say anything to us. We just want Jesus to do something for us. Don't speak to me, Jesus. Just do something. Fix it. We don't want a lecture. We don't want a sermon. We just need our problems fixed and our storm stopped. But here is Jesus speaking to his followers before he is speaking to the storm. And he's showing that he's not a magician. He's not our personal genie. The word is central. He has something to say to us. In every single storm we face, Jesus has something to say. Will you listen? Will you listen? Matthew's Gospel reports that Jesus questions his disciples about their faith before he stills the storm. Mark's Gospel says the opposite says he questions his disciples about their faith after he stills the storm. Now, instead of chucking out the Bible, treating that as a contradiction, it's safe to say he did both, and that each gospel writer is trying to make a particular point. So here, Jesus confronts the fear in the disciples' hearts before confronting the storm the disciples are facing. The old Puritan devotional writer Matthew Henry said, He does not chide them for disturbing him with their prayers, but for disturbing themselves with their fears. But Jesus' question to them is strong. It seems close to a rebuke. When he asks them why they are afraid, the word he uses for their fear is only used two other times in the New Testament. One time with the same event in Mark's Gospel, and the other time in Revelation when it's describing cowards who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The disciples have no need to be afraid because Jesus is with them. He's reminding them that they need to get their eyes off the power of the storm and entrust themselves completely to him and his power. They need to remember that their father in heaven, like we learned before in the Sermon on the Mount, that the father cares for them. The root of many of our anxieties, the root of many of our fears, are that we forget that we have a Father who cares for us. We forget that we have Jesus as the elder brother who is with us. The issue here is that their eyes were still partially on the storm when they should have been entirely and completely on the Savior. Fear increases when we look at the storm. Faith increases when we look Jesus. But we shouldn't press that point too hard because Jesus still delivers the ones with the little faith. Jesus still saves the ones with the little faith. Though their faith is weak, it's still faith. They still turn to Jesus. They still run to Jesus. One commentator put it this way, the point is that even when our faith is excessively fearful, Jesus hears our cry, gets up, rebukes wind and sea, and creates calm. Jesus does not say, as he might have, come back later when your faith is stronger, and I'll help you. He takes us as we come. What matters in the final analysis is that Jesus helps us however we come to him. Just come. Jesus is all about, as we've been learning, delivering and drawing near people who need help. He saves anyone with just a little faith. So with that being an encouragement to you, are you afraid? Run to Jesus, even with your fear. Are you in a storm? Are you full of fear? Do what the disciples do. Go straight to Jesus. That's how faith grows. That's how faith grows. Look at the end of the verse. After giving the disciples a bit of a rebuke, he gives the storm a bigger one. Jesus Shushes, sushes, the storm. He rebukes it like he rebukes demons. This does not mean that a demonic power was behind the storm. 
by rebuking the storm, he's demonstrating that he has power over nature, that his authority is greater than nature. Even more, he's showing that he is greater than any supposed pagan god of nature. Pagans of the day caught in a storm may have called upon Poseidon, the trident-carrying Greek god of the sea, or they may have called upon his brother Zeus, who was the chief god of all gods in the Greek pantheon and the one who controlled the weather. But Jesus didn't do this. He didn't call on any other god to act on his behalf in the storm. His rebuke did not indicate the presence of a demon, but the power of his nature over mother nature. He is in charge. Zeus and Poseidon are nothing. They are not gods at all. They are false. They don't exist. Most striking of all, Jesus doesn't even call upon his father to still the storm. He assumes his own authority and he commands the storm to stop. And it does. It stops instantaneously. The sea goes from quaking to great calm. It's not a gradual miracle. Jesus tells the sea to rest. He calms the chaos and saves these disciples with little faith. They're still trying to figure out who this man exactly is. Look at the last verse. Notice how the men marvel and wonder and are astonished by the man from Nazareth. All of us, at least on some level, have been awed by a storm, by a natural disaster. But there is someone that elicits more admiration than gigantic waves, than driving winds, and he is right in the boat with them. In some ways, the most terrifying thing in the story is not the storm. Jesus, what kind of man makes weather obedient? What kind of man silences a storm? The Greek word for men used here about the followers of Jesus is anthropos and is meant to highlight the fact that these were, or excuse me, was meant not to highlight the fact that these were men, not women, was meant to highlight the fact that these were anthropos, that these were humans, human beings. Matthew's drawing a contrast between the men in the boat and the man, Christ Jesus, in the boat. The men don't realize who Jesus is yet, but one thing is for sure, Jesus is not an ordinary man. In the days that followed, what they would be talking about would not be the power of the storm, but they'd be talking about the power of Jesus. Imagine the disciples, they're gathered around a campfire late at night, eating fish sticks. They are... Alone, meaning Jesus is not with them. He's out praying with his father. And they retell the story, and they're stunned by Jesus' authority. The storm is not the center of the conversations Jesus is. And the storms that have come in your life, the storms that are coming in your life, are not meant to define who you are. Jesus is meant to define who you are. The question continues to linger, who is this man, Jesus? So imagine on that same night of stories right before they go to sleep, and one of the disciples, and maybe it's Matthew, long time before he actually wrote the gospel, maybe he starts quoting to the rest of the disciples the verses that we read in Psalm 107 about the redeeming act and steadfast love of Yahweh. And as he gets to the end of the psalm, maybe he stumbles a little bit over the verses we read. Maybe he stutters a bit. The comparison between the events of verses 23 and 30 and the events of his own experience with the others sounds all too familiar. He may make it all the way through the psalm, and maybe he's too afraid to say it, but he wonders, wait, this psalm is our story. This psalm is our story. We are the men who went down to the sea in ships. We are the guys who saw the deeds of the Lord. We faced the stormy winds and the high waves of the sea that rose and blew according to God's command. We are the sailors whose courage melted away in the face of the storm. We staggered like drunken men, utterly at our wit's end. We are the ones who cried out to the God of Israel. No, to Jesus in our trouble. And He made the storm be still. Jesus hushed the waves of the sea. We were amazed. We were glad that the waters were quiet. 
quiet. We were brought across to the haven, the safe place. So you see, in this section of Scripture, Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the God of Israel in flesh. Jesus does what only Yahweh does. He is the one with absolute authority over nature. Jesus is the one who commands the waves to crest and commands seas to be calm. He is the sovereign God. In verse 24, we have the humanity of Jesus. In verse 26 of Matthew, we have the divinity of Jesus. Jesus falls asleep in a storm because he's a human being. He's a man, just like us. He's tired. He's been casting out demons all day. And he still storms because he is the one and the only God who loves to redeem and to save his people. So yes, there should be an element of fear when we recognize who Jesus is. Like a seeming uncontrollable storm, we cannot control Jesus. He is the sovereign one. But, Jesus controls the storm. He redeems people out of their distress. So if you're, if you're in a storm today, what's the point? Cry out to Jesus. Scream, yell if you need to. Does it seem like Jesus is sleeping? Wake him up. Jesus wields his sovereign authority with rescue. We've been seeing this for several weeks, and it's going to become more and more apparent as we move along in this gospel that Jesus is the compassionate one. Jesus is the compassionate one. He bends to human need. He still storms. He still does it. He still still storms. He still heals disease. He still casts out demons. He still liberates people from bondage. His kingdom is here. His kingdom is here. So, ask Him. Ask Him to bring it. Don't view God's sovereignty in such a way that it means that God in Christ will only sustain you in the storm. He will sustain you in the storm. But, also ask Him. Maybe in this storm He will rise up. Maybe He will rebuke it and it will go away. Don't make your default position to be as one sitting in your boat, storm-tossed, passive. Be like the disciples of Jesus. Run to him. Ask him for rescue. We know he does it. But again, some of us are thinking, wait a minute. This is a good story, but my storm was not calm. My boat got shattered with bodies strewn across the sea. I cried out. I asked God till my throat was raw and deliverance didn't come. I'm still in pain. My child is still gone. My family is still broken. My physical, my mental diagnosis hasn't changed. And the point is, we all live in tension. That Jesus' kingdom has come, and we ask it to continue to come, but His kingdom is coming, and that it hasn't come in fullness yet. It hasn't come in fullness yet, but it will be when Jesus returns. And so what I believe Jesus wants us to hear is that though He may not rescue you from every kind of storm, He will, as verse 28 says, bring you to the other side. Some of us don't want this kind of Jesus. We want genie Jesus. We want Jesus to take us away from the storm, not into the storm. But Jesus never promised this. He never promised a storm-free life. He never promised us rescue from every storm. But He promises always to be with you. He promises to be with you in the boat, in the storm. If you're a follower of Jesus, you must know that Jesus is with you. No matter what you feel like, no matter how bad the storm is, Jesus loves you. Jesus will be with you. He's 100% for you. He is never against you. He's 100% with you, no matter what. No matter what storm comes in your life. Nothing, not demons, not distress, not death, can separate you as a believer in Christ, from the love of Jesus and from the presence of Jesus. Romans 8, 36-39. Romans 8, 36-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword 
as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a promise for those who trust Jesus. So can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire, that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. As a follower of Jesus, can we honestly say that? I'm so weak and so sinful. I'm so prone to complain, to find my strength, to find my portion in other things, or to just climb inside, take refuge in the self-pity of my own self. We shouldn't long for our flesh and for our hearts to fail. But by God's grace, the primary strength of your heart, the primary strength of your portion is to be found in Jesus no matter what. In your storm, in your boat right now, is Jesus your security? Or are you trusting most in the sturdy ship of your own strength? Are you trusting in your money, your insurance, your doctors? Jesus is to be your heart's desire. Jesus is to be your portion, no matter what happens. Maybe some of you don't know Jesus. Maybe you question, how can God allow storms? How can God allow the kinds of storms that you've experienced in your life, the ones you see around the world? We've all seen tsunamis wipe out thousands of people in the news. Maybe you faced personal disaster. And the scriptures don't answer every single one of those questions. But they do give us the main answer. And it's not a clever philosophical answer. It's not a proposition. It's a person. It's Jesus. That's the answer. The one who summons and stills storms is the one who came to a broken world full of broken people to die and to rise again. To make the world and to make sinners whole. Jesus isn't off in the sky, watching above, God distant, way out there, running the clock. He's in the boat. He's in the storm. There's another natural disaster in the book of Matthew. And instead of a natural disaster during a dark night on the sea, it's a natural disaster during a dark day on the land place of the death of Christ, the time right after Jesus dies and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This desperate cry, which many of us have either said in our heads or in our mouths, is said by the only one who never did anything to deserve saying it. The sky is dark, the earth shakes, rocks split, and the dead live, Matthew tells us. And a Roman centurion near Jesus sees it all. And with similar awe like the disciples on that lake that night, he answers the disciples' question. What kind of man is this? He answers it with the answer, truly, this was the Son of God. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one to 54 And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was. So this is not only a man with a unique authority to boss nature around. 
This is the Son of God. This is the God-man. The one who came not to condemn us, but to deliver us. The one who willingly took the full brunt of the wrath of his loving Father against sin and absorbed it into himself to make many sons of God. The one who is alive right now. The one who is alive, ruling and reigning with scars in his hands. Scars of a lamb. And ruling with the might of a lion. He is the one who desires that as we continue following Jesus, that we remember his body and his blood broken for us. So we pledge our allegiance, not with a flag, but with empty hands that simply receive all that Jesus has won for us. So that we can face any storm in life, whether it's from our circumstances, whether it's in our bodies, whether it's from our sins, but we can face any of those storms with the confidence that Jesus is not only with us and will never, ever, ever forsake us, but that Jesus is for us, that Jesus is never against us. A storm may be against you, but God never is. You trust Christ. So trust Him. Have faith. Trust Him. Take communion. Let's look in. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty, glorify the true belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. He will embrace me in his 
And in the arms of my dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms. If you in the garden on the ground your maker lies on the bloody tree behold him sinner wellness not suffice slow the incarnate slow the incarnate God ascended Pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust in truth. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. And in the arms of my dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms. There are. There are 10,000 1 Corinthians 11:23 For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said This is my body which is for you do this in remembrance In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So come. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. For me, it was in the garden. For me, it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will, but thine. He had no tears for his own grief, but sweat drops and blood for mine. Oh, how marvelous. Singing, oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. In pity, angels beheld him and came. Comfort him in the sorrows he bore. 
that night. Oh, how marvelous. Singing, oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. He took my sin. He took my sin and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. With the ransomed in glory. When the ransomed in glory his face I at last shall see twill be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me singing oh how marvelous oh how wonderful my song shall ever be. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Singing, oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love 